Hello, I'm Edith Chakraborty and welcome to The Business. This week, the rise and fall of Dubai. We ask, is a crisis in the Emirates containable? Or are Latvia, Ukraine and even Greece possibly next? We'll look ahead to next week's pre-budget report with a chance they're ready to slash public spending. Our own profits of doom are on hand to provide their previews and predictions. And with a housing market showing some signs of life, how easy is it to get a mortgage? This is The Business from The Guardian. Joining me in the studio this week, I have The Guardian's Head of Business, Dan Roberts. And Dan, the question of this week is, would you rather be Dubai's Sheikh Mohammed or Labour's Alistair Darling? Oh, Sheikh Mohammed, I think. He's still uh, got a, a, a much easier job than Alistair Darling, and he's got a rather large yacht and some racehorses to compensate. And we've also got the Observer's Economics Editor, Heather Stewart. Hobson's choice to you, Heather. Oh, I'm de- I'd definitely rather be Alistair Darling. I'd definitely rather spend my weekends in, uh, in Edinburgh than in a, a culture-free desert, I'm afraid. Guardian Business Editor, Deborah Hargreaves. Hello, Deborah. Hello. Do it, Hobson's choice to you. Uh, who would want to live in Dubai, please? Certainly not me. Well, we have to start this week with a trouble in desert paradise or trouble in a concrete hell built by modern-day slave labour, depending on your point of view. The Guardian's Brian Whitaker watched Dubai boom during his period as Middle East editor. He says it was a classic case of a bubble that had to burst. It's got the, this image of a sort of gold rush town where everything depends on people's confidence that things will continue growing indefinitely into the future. And uh, so we had all these fantastic schemes like you know, a ski slope with artificial snow with 90 degree temperatures outside. The famous uh, Bourges uh, Dubai Hotel shaped like a sail where it costs huge amounts of money to stay for one night. And the expectation really was that it was going to just carry on like that. And I I think also it's interesting to compare it with some of the neighbouring countries and the different approaches they've been taking. Uh, For example, Qatar has a lot of, uh, a reasonable amount of oil and a great deal of gas. And Qatar has been spending money on basically people development. And in a way, that looks a great deal more sustainable than what Dubai has been doing. There are seven emirates, all with their own royal ruler, and they operate as a kind of federation. And they don't uh, have political parties there. Basically, I mean, they are monarchies, where the monarch knows best and everybody else um, lets them get on with it. And, of course, that, uh, I suppose, in a way, that's one of the reasons why things haven't turned out so well. Perhaps there wasn't enough uh, scrutiny, you know, enough, not enough accountability for the way things were being done. Uh, that said, I mean, the other Emirates were also a bit dubious about the way Dubai was heading. Brian Whitaker there. And, plug alert, his latest book, What's Really Wrong with the Middle East, is out now. Dan, Dubai's government said this week that they're not going to guarantee the debt to Dubai world. What are they playing at? Well, I think uh, the country's, uh, or the emirate is, is, is broke. Um, the reason I say that is because this is such a prestigious company for them. And the bits of the debt that they're walking away from are the most prestigious bits of the prestigious company. You know, the property development, Nikhil, um, these famous islands. They wouldn't be walking away from this if there was any realistic prospect of um, uh, of repairing it. And it's doing colossal damage to Dubai's reputation as an international financial centre. I would say 
pretty much killed off Dubai's hopes of ever becoming a serious international financial centre. So you just have to assume that the reason they're taking this huge hit, this huge reputational hit, is because they have no choice, because they are broke as, as, a, as, as a state. Um, and, and I think that... Um, uh, that that should inf- inform everything we think about the statements that are coming out at the moment when they keep saying everything's fine, it's all an overreaction, it's West Western prejudice against the Middle East, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, you know they're not they're not they're not stupid. We, we we credit these people with a great deal of commercial savvy. They're walking away because they have no choice. And how much is Dubai World actually to be confused or aligned with Dubai? Well, I, I think for the, for the reasons I've just said, the reputational reasons, I think it, it has to be seen as very much aligned. I mean, it's it's owned primarily by the state. Clearly, legally, it's a separate entity, and legally, they're perfectly entitled to say, you know, these debts are the lookout of uh, of the banks that were foolish enough to 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 uh, to extend them. And I think they're they're right about that. But at the end of the day, there's two things you have to think about. One is Dubai needs um, continued access to the financial markets to help it restructure, and would not give that up lightly. And two, it has ambitions to be a major financial centre itself and, again, would not trash its image with with world investors lightly. So I think they are intimately connected. Deborah, talking of foolish banks, what's the British exposure to all this debt? Well, interestingly, the two banks most exposed to Dubai are those that came through the credit crunch relatively unscathed, so HSBC and Standard Chartered. HSBC has $17 billion worth of um, lending to the company. Both banks have given assurances that they're not heavily involved, they're not heavily exposed, and that it's recoverable. But I do think it's quite interesting that we've always, these two banks have always relied on their international spread as an insurance policy against being too committed to the UK market, which obviously blew up a lot of the other banks. But now they're facing problems elsewhere in the world. And Heather, the $60 billion question, is this crisis going to spread? Well, I think the direct impact of it in in terms of you know, how does the Dubai debt affect the balance sheets of banks and so on is pretty containable. But what became very clear last week as as sort of markets around the world were affected by this was that there's a a huge confidence effect because, you know, people had stopped worrying about problems in emerging markets. And, and, you know, the the, the increase in share prices over the last six months or so has looked as though we're all now expecting a kind of V-shaped global recovery. And what this reminds you is that when you've, you've had a huge debt bubble, you know, these problems have a very long fuse. And just because something doesn't blow up during the initial wave of the credit crunch, it doesn't mean that it's over. And there are lots of governments, lots of sort of sovereign states facing huge debt burdens. And and those things can unfold, you know, much more slowly. And and there might be much worse to come, I think, in in sort of 2010 or, or, or even later. And that's what this reminds us of, I think, that it's very much not over. Dan, before Dubai came along, people used to talk about Ukraine possibly blowing up, Latvia, Estonia... Even Greece. I mean, how seriously are we, are we to take that kind of talk? Well, I mean, the markets took it reasonably seriously. At back end of last week, you saw a rise in credit default protection for these sovereign debt issuers, which basically means that um, the market was judging that their risk of default had gone up slightly. I mean, I think it's important to put that in context. They were much higher a year or so ago when we were in the midst of the banking crisis. But as Heather said, it's an important reminder that these heavily indebted countries as well as companies haven't gone away and if anything you know they, they've just sort of been been put on hold for the last year or two and perhaps the low interest rate environment we've been in all the pumping of money into the system we've seen has postponed these problems but it hasn't secured them. It's interesting I think Dubai it was almost the epitome of the sort of credit bubble we've been living in in the last 10 years you know here you have a, a, a 
a country built on sand almost, which relied on ever-rising property prices to fund its own debt. And now the property bubble has burst and you're seeing the whole thing f- collapse around your ears. It's, it's almost like a metaphor for the US subprime crisis. And as Dan said, we're having assurances all the time from the rulers that things are OK. Well, does that not sound quite familiar? We, two years ago, we were having assurances from the US and from banks in the West that they were, would withstand the credit crunch. We were being told by HBOS just weeks before it blew up that its mortgage book was fine and healthy and not risky at all. And so you have to you have to wonder what's going on behind the scenes and you have to think that there are a lot of other things like this out there to come home. Um, the US at the moment, I read a very good piece in the FT this morning about US bank loans which were rolling over their debt on a delay and pray basis and pray that economic recovery would rescue them. So, I mean, there could be a lot more debt problems to come. Ever. I mean, it's one thing for countries like Ukraine and Latvia to come under the, the microscope, but Greece is part of the Eurozone. Surely Germany, France, all the rest of that will step in to help it out, won't they? Well, it's not impossible that they would, but there's no formal mechanism for doing that. And it was certainly, you know, one of the sort of preconditions that, that Germany and other, other sort of stronger economies in the Eurozone felt that they had put on their membership of the single currency, that no, they wouldn't have to bail anyone out. But the problem for someone like Greece is that if they weren't part of the Eurozone, what would be happening right now is that they would be picked off by the markets and their currency would plummet. And that might help them in the way that hopefully the sterling depreciation might help us to generate a recovery and to pay down our debts. It might help them. Well, they can't do that because they're stuck in the Eurozone, which, you know, has, has sort of helped them not have to deal with their debt crisis for many years because they've, you know, effectively free ridden on other members. But it leaves them in a very difficult position now, I think. And, I, I, you know, the Commission is, is looking at their debts at the moment and even threatening to levy a fine on them, although that's obviously a very counterintuitive thing to do to a country that has a very large deficit as a, as a punishment. But, you know, they, they are in a real mess. And it's, it's, it's a test for the Eurozone as a whole, I think, how they, how they deal with this. And you can follow the crisis in Dubai as markets react to all week at guardian.co.uk slash business. From Dubai with its property boom, over-reliance on banking, ruined balance sheet, to um, Britain and next week's pre-budget report. The government's committed itself to halving the deficit in four years. But is that really a good idea in the middle of an historic crisis? Heather, what do you think? I think it's risky. I think it was a political decision because early in the summer Gordon Brown refused to talk about the idea of cuts that became taboo because it was it was not something Labour did and therefore you know the Tories very much stole the march and said you know this is there's a crisis we have to deal with it we have to sort the public finances out this is the big problem facing Britain Labour then found itself responding to that and I think there is there is a considerable risk that all this happens too soon we're, we're expecting to get out of to clamber out of recession in this current quarter in the fourth quarter it's not impossible that we'll get another negative quarter of growth but the economy is still extremely fragile more fragile than any other in the g20 arguably certainly every other economy in the g20 is now growing and ours isn't and you know certainly the economic textbooks tell you that withdrawing fiscal stimulus too soon is is a very risky risky business so but we're already locked into withdrawing fiscal stimulus we are at the end of this year anyway we are VAT cut gets rolled back and all the rest of it yes what do you think they darling should do I think he should commit, you know, if we don't get growth, if we don't get back to, to 
you know, something more like a normal economy, I think you should be ready to spend more. But that's extremely politically difficult, you know, given the, the stance that the Conservatives have taken and the corner that Labour have backed themselves into. But, I, you know, I think you, you've got to stand. It's an extremely unpredictable economic situation at the moment. And you've got to stand ready, if necessary, to, to spend more money on, on supporting demand because the government is the only place demand is going to come from at the moment. And you do it this month, would you? I think they can't afford to. The obvious thing would be to extend the, the the VAT cut, but I think that's that's expensive, and I don't think they can afford to do it. But they might be able to do more, for example, on unemployment, and they might commit to think about some of the other delay. There were lots of delayed tax measures, for example, coming in in 2011. They could commit to think about those, to review those nearer the time and, and make that contingent on. I think what's particularly bizarre is that they're now, you know, their great measure, economic measure in the Queen's speech was to put this promise to halve the deficit as a percentage of GDP into legislation, which seems to me extraordinary because if you, if you had, you know, A, it's just legislating for something you'd already said you were going to do, which is quite strange. Um, and B, if there were, an, you know, vast double dip a horrendous double dip recession in 2010 or 2011 it would be insane it would be insane to stick with the plan so I, I think that's very strange yes but we do have to we do have to show that we have a plan that's for the long term as well I mean I think that the differences between the two parties on this is has been very much overblown and actually the rhetoric is quite different but underneath it all both main parties I think have to grapple with the fact that yes in the short term it would be madness to be to be winding back the deficit in the depths of a recession but in the medium to long term you have to show how we're going to balance the books in the longer term and and I think that the, the, the reason for that is very very clear and we've just been discussing it in the context of Dubai and Greece and Ukraine in that we require we require the confidence of international investors to continue buying British gilts and at the moment fortunately that 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 is a relatively smooth process but we we are we are not that far away from that process becoming a very difficult process and and the the the, the gap between the two is is in convincing the markets convincing the credit rating agencies that we have a long-term plan the rest is just detail on timing and actually I don't think that Osborne and um, and Darling fundamentally would be that different I mean I, I think that they, you know Osborne would have to accept that you'd have to do it slowly but and Darling accepts you have to talk about how we get out of it Deborah, Heather's talking about a growth crisis, Dan's talking about a debt crisis. Which one are you more worried about? Well, I'm worried about both, really. I mean, I agree with both, but and, and, and I can see, you know, it makes it a very difficult situation for, for Alistair Darling. But I think um, we're obviously, at the moment, we, we haven't really felt the full impact of the downturn. Obviously, those people who've lost their jobs have, but people who've got mortgages have seen their rates go down quite considerably and feeling a little bit richer. But we're throwing a lot of cheap money around and inflating other bubbles. And um, the stock market's going up a lot. House prices are going up again. And I think we're... The underlying economy is still very fragile and we've got a lot of painful medicine to come in which we could all feel a lot poorer. OK, let's do the Mystic Meg section. Concrete predictions and what you expect next week. Let's start with you, Dan. I think we'll hear more than we expect on deficit reduction from Darling. I think the events of the last week in Dubai will have been a timely wake-up call that he needs to be talking to international bond markets as much I as... I want to- a concrete measure that I'll see in the book. Oh well, he'll, I think that you'll see some 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 more public sector spending cuts being announced. That's wussy and vague. Heather, something specific. <laughs> How much do you want? <laughs> well, Heather's going to give us something very specific. Come on. 
There was some some extension of the measures on unemployment for young people, I think. But but I think most of the, the concrete measures are likely to be quite low cost. And I think they all talk a lot about the deficit, but I think we've we've already got the outline of what they're going to do, which is to halve it in four years. And I don't think we'll, we'll see... We'll, there'll be a lot of talking about it, but I don't think me, much Willie, more in terms of so measures. Nothing at all. You're... I've got one. Yeah, I, don't one. Is, Deborah, I don't think there's going to be much at all. I've got one. Children, Increase in VAT to 20% from 2011. That would be popular. Oh, controversial. I thought you were saying windfall tax on banks, a la Compass. It should be a windfall tax on bank bonuses, but I don't know if that there will be one. I think they're too frightened of upsetting the city. So you want the poor I'd want shopper one. I'd to want pay... I'm saying what's more likely, what is more likely is a tax on shoppers. But why would you announce that now when you could leave it till after the election Credibility. to announce it? Yeah, I suppose so. Surely. Part of your plan. Except they think that what they've announced already gets them to the halving the deficit, they claim. And then, and they're probably not going to change their growth forecasts. But you could say, OK, I'm raising VAT, but I'm going to use that money to bring down youth unemployment. Yeah, now, that really is a, something important. Now, ever since Northern Rock collapsed in 2007, cheap and easy mortgages have been in short supply. Even now, with the housing market showing faltering signs of life, getting on the property ladder is not for the faint-hearted. Listen to the story of first-time buyer Phil in a case study for our new personal finance podcast. Right, let's see if we can get in for a start. Um, hallway. This leads into uh, the living room, which is the front aspect of the building. Bit of a noisy I think everyone at my age is a first-time buyer. I'm 28, so the opportunity to get on the ladder has been a long time coming. Uh, the mortgage market at the moment, uh, very tough in my experience. I used a financial advisor, a very well-known wealth management company. I went to them because they're a whole-of-market uh, mortgage advisor and I respect their ability to have access to more mortgages than I can get on my own. Uh, into the bathroom, which is uh, small but perfectly formed, rather like myself. In London, you are going to get bathrooms which don't have any windows and don't have any uh, sort of out- outside light. But um, his recommendation was to go for the two-year tracker, which is at four and a half, a uh, 4.4% above base rate, which means I'll be paying about 4.9% at the current. With the idea that interest rates are historically low, although in the current circumstances we don't really know what's going on. But the anticipation was that interest rates would stay in and around that level for the next two years. After that two-year period, my lock-in period, I can then look to remortgage or get onto a fixed rate where I can take a longer period. The next door is the kitchen, which is also very small, but plenty of fitted units. I'll be on my own, so I don't need a lot of space. I do cook. I am a modern man. Uh, it's got a nice rear ac- uh, aspect, so I can always... Like, the process of getting approval for a mortgage and finding a provider, it certainly seems a, a lot harder than it was in the days of Northern Rock falling over themselves to lend people money. I have a good credit rating, but my provider made me sign a commitment that I would pay off all my credit cards uh, within one month of the mortgage approval. So I couldn't have any unsecured debt whatsoever to my name within one month of taking out the mortgage. Um, luckily for me, I already paid off my credit cards, but I had to state all my credit cards, what the limits were, who the providers were, and what the current balances were, and then anyway, provide that undertaking. Uh, onto a rather small balcony, but a lovely balcony all the same. A real bonus. A bit of outside space, a little bit of uh, fresh air, a, bit, a little bit of light. Um, it's not particularly. Overlooked. It's been hard work, but no I'd like to think the outcome is worth the slog that it feels like it's been to get this far. 
I'd like to think I'll be moving in all my little boxes over the weekend or on Monday morning and then settling down for a cup of tea and probably sitting on the boxes because I don't own any furniture or a bed. But I, I do have a sleeping bag. David Hollingworth is a mortgage specialist for London and Country. Well, we've seen a, a direct reversal in the market of 2007, which was very volume-driven. So lenders were, as uh, the case study said, almost falling over themselves to lend money. Now we're in very much a different marketplace, and actually lenders are almost pulling away from lending too much. They've only got limited funds that they will uh, be prepared to lend. The margin on uh, mortgage deals and the rates have been pushed up, uh, and it's a much tougher process to get hold of a mortgage. One of the biggest changes has clearly been the deposit requirements, and that has hit first-time buyers hard. So whilst they've seen prices dropping, actually, in terms of mortgage rate, they need a much bigger deposit than they will have been used to. Earlier in the year, we saw a rush to fixed rates because the forecasts were that base rates could rise very quickly and sharply. Um, however, that's now started to change. Forecasts are that base rate could stay lower for longer. And so there has been a definite shift back uh, in balance towards variable rates, so tracker deals in particular. What you have to ultimately do is look at what's going to be best for you. Can you manage an increase in your payments if base rate were to go up by even as much as 3 4 5%? If the answer is, is no, then I think you have to still make the consideration of whether a fixed rate is a better deal for you. And our Money Guide podcast can be found this month at guardian.co.uk slash audio. My thanks to the panel, Heather Stewart, Dan Roberts and Deborah Hargreaves. Today's programme was produced by Phil Maynard and I'm Adit Chakraborty. We're back next Thursday for a special edition of The Business where our experts will give you their take on the pre-budget report. Join us then. <laughs>